This podcast is made possible by Cocovia. Now introducing memory and focus. This new brain health supplement is a unique blend of plant-based ingredients made with Cocoa Pro Plus proprietary botanical blend, clinically proven lutein, and naturally sourced caffeine. It's specially designed to keep you focused, boost memory, and support brain function with a single capsule daily. Learn more at Cocovia.com. That's Cocovia.com. In February 2020, no one imagined that COVID would last over two years and kill a million Americans. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Most of us thought the pandemic would be long gone by now, but the latest variants are spreading rapidly. Even though people have discarded their masks and are hanging out with friends and family, COVID-19 continues to kill over 300 people every day. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a pediatrician and chief health officer at Indiana University. He brings a data-driven perspective to the latest news about COVID-19. He'll debunk the myths about the vaccines. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, when will the COVID pandemic be over? In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, COVID-19 variants continue to proliferate. We've gone from Alpha and Delta to Omicron. The latest variants are more contagious than prior versions of the virus. BA4 and BA5 are overtaking BA2. That's why people who have been vaccinated and even boosted are still coming down with COVID-19. It's estimated that the average daily infection rate is over 100,000 cases, though at-home testing is making it harder to get accurate numbers. Hospitalizations and deaths, however, are tracked more closely. The U.S. is continuing to experience hundreds of deaths every day. Many people remain optimistic about the potential for ivermectin to speed recovery from COVID-19, despite disappointing results from previous studies. Now, one of the largest clinical trials to date confirms that ivermectin does not provide significant clinical benefit. Researchers at Duke and Vanderbilt Universities recruited 1,500 patients for the randomized placebo-controlled trial. There was no statistically significant difference in the risk for hospitalization or death. There was one situation in which ivermectin might have been helpful, however. Some of the volunteers with severe COVID symptoms seem to recover a little bit faster, but this result requires further research for confirmation because the numbers were so small. The investigators plan to increase the dose and duration of ivermectin among severely ill patients to test that hypothesis. The tick-borne infection caused by the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi was named Lyme disease after Old Lyme, Connecticut. That's where a cluster of children and adults were identified with strange symptoms, including joint pain. As a result of this geographic association, many doctors consider this infection specific to New England and perhaps the upper Midwest of the U.S. That view is too limited, according to a new study published in BMJ Global Health. 
The analysis of data from 89 studies shows that more than 14% of the people in the world have been infected with the spirochete. The highest rate of infection was not in the U.S. at all, but rather in Central Europe. Other areas with high rates were Eastern Asia at 16% and Western Europe with 13.5%. Tick-borne diseases in general are increasing as ticks and humans interact in the same habitat. Climate change bringing hotter, drier summers may also be contributing. Virtually everyone in the U.S. has been exposed to PFAS chemicals. That stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances found in firefighting foam, nonstick coatings, food packaging, and waterproofing or stain-resistant chemicals used in clothing, furniture, and carpets. Pesticides are also an important source. These are also referred to as forever chemicals because they persist in the environment for so long. These compounds end up in the air we breathe, the dust in our homes, the food we eat, and the water we drink. They're suspected of disrupting our hormones. A new study reveals a connection between high levels of PFAS chemicals and high blood pressure in women. More than a 1,000 middle-aged women participated in the study of women's health across the nation for 20 years. Those with the highest levels of PFAS compounds in their bloodstream were at greatest risk for hypertension. The EPA announced this week that PFAS chemicals pose a greater danger than the agency had previously recognized. It's taking steps to propose limits for at least two of these chemicals in water supplies. In the United States, black women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer before menopause. Now, scientists suggest that hair care products may play a role. In laboratory research, breast cancer cell lines derived from black women responded to chemicals called parabens with aggressive growth. Breast cancer cell lines from white women did not react in the same way. This is especially worrisome because hair care products marketed to black women are more likely to contain parabens as preservatives. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The COVID pandemic has dragged on for more than two and a half years. Over 500 million people worldwide have been infected and more than 6 million have died. The latest variants, BA4 and BA5, are spreading rapidly. Most people are ready to be done with the pandemic. They've discarded their masks, started gathering at restaurants and sporting events, and are acting as if there's no longer any risk. But many people are coming down with COVID, even after being vaccinated and boosted. How should we manage this phase of the pandemic? We are talking today with Dr. Aaron Carroll. He is a distinguished professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and the chief health officer of Indiana University. He blogs on health research and policy at the Incidental Economist. Dr. Carroll holds the title of Bicentennial Professor and is Associate Dean for Research Mentoring and Director of Surveillance and Mitigation. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Thank you so much for having me back. Dr. Carroll, here we are. 
two and a half years pandemic, 80 million cases in the U.S., actually more than 80 million, more than a million deaths, hard to imagine, worldwide over 500 million cases, more than 6 million deaths. People want this pandemic to be over. What do we mean by over? God, that is such a good question. Um, And I think if you ask five people, you'll get six different answers. But my answer would be, I think we could feel like this is over if we can get to a point where it doesn't affect us much more than your average seasonal virus. Um, You know, and I've always wished that we had a better response to influenza and that we didn't have the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths every year in the United States that we used to. But we were able to cope, um, you know, with tens of thousands of Americans dying, which is horrific. And I wish we did a better job, but the world did not ground to a halt. We were able somehow to sustain that uh, and to keep going. And if we could get COVID to a place where not too many people get sick, where those who do are mostly self-contained and okay, and some smallish number wind up being hospitalized and, you know, unfortunately have severe outcomes, we probably could more likely go back to normal. But we're not there. We just aren't. Um, you know, every, we keep having new variants, which are turning up too fast. There are just far too many cases. And we have too many periods where we overwhelm the healthcare system, where too many people are sick and hospitalized and dying at the same time. And as long as that's going on, we're nowhere close to done. Now, as I understand it, Dr. Carroll, at least 60% of Americans have actually had COVID. Maybe it's more than that by now because those data are at least two weeks old. Are we going to get to a point where everyone's had COVID and lots of people have had it not once, not twice, but multiple times? I think the likelihood is yes. I mean, if you think about the four or so coronaviruses that are endemic right now, they cause colds. And we don't talk about them or really care about them because colds are self-limited illnesses that don't really get people that sick. But what happens is people get a cold. They're immune for some time against that virus, and then later they'll get the cold again. Uh, that that immunity is not lifelong. I think that some studies that looked at SARS, the last big dangerous coronavirus we had, thought that you know immunity might last two to three years. I think that that's being generous when it comes to uh, SARS-CoV-2 or the one that you know we're calling uh, COVID right now, uh, because it's mutating so quickly. Uh, we're seeing strains come out that are different enough from each other that it it does seem quite possible that people get reinfected with COVID and get infected even if they have been immunized. The hope is that eventually you have enough immunity that you're not having severe illness, that you might get infected, you might even have some illness, but that you're not severely impacted with hospitalization or something worse. Uh, that, again, I think would, would be a win. But the idea that people are going to get infected with COVID and maybe be symptomatic multiple times, I think absolutely that there's a really good likelihood of that. I think a lot of people, Dr. Carroll, thought that, well, I, I've had two shots, Moderna or Pfizer. I've gotten the the boost. Oh, wait a minute. I got two boosts. So four shots. 
I'm protected. I'm bulletproof. And then all of a sudden they catch COVID and they go, wait a minute, you promised I wouldn't catch this thing. How did that happen? Well, I think it was bad communication about vaccines to begin with. So we should remember that the main metric by which we judge the efficacy of vaccines are in preventing hospitalization and death, Um, not in cases, but in actual bad outcomes that it was never sold from the get-go as this will prevent you from ever becoming infected with COVID. It was your body will be able to fight off the infection before anything really bad happens to you. Um, In fact, when vaccines were approved and we started having lots of people vaccinated, we were still doing a fair amount of asymptomatic testing on our campus and others were as well because we didn't know whether the vaccines would actually prevent infection. We only knew that they would prevent hospitalization and death, and we were still too worried about outbreaks or really widespread transmission amongst people who were and were not vaccinated. Uh, Over time, more and more data started to pour in that, yes, the vaccines did help prevent some infections, but still what we really cared about was uh, hospitalizations and death. And then, of course, the, the the virus started to mutate and it started to get even more and more infectious. Uh, you know, what I used, what I jokingly called to is COVID classic. We, then we had alpha. Then we had Delta that was really bad. And then of course, Omicron and now different strains of Omicron. And each of those has become so successively more infected that yes, you're going to, there's a very high likelihood you get quote unquote infected and maybe even get a little ill, uh, even if you are vaccinated and boosted. But but you're not going to have the bad outcome. And they still work massively well to prevent those bad outcomes. I got COVID for the first time about two weeks ago. Uh, I got it from my wife and daughter. All of us have been fully vaccinated and gotten one booster. And even in our house, my wife was you know, sort of annoyed, like, what did this? And I'm like, you have to remember that the vaccine wasn't a, a promise that we would never get infected. It was a pretty good guarantee that none of us would get so sick that we'd have to go to the hospital, have anything happen to us. And it did that. Uh, that's a win. That's what we're buying for the most part with vaccination. But unfortunately, I think too many people also believe it should mean that they never get ill at all. Now, are we going to um, discover that we need an annual COVID vaccination, just like we need an annual flu vaccine? Well, we just don't know. And I'm actually happy you you brought up the flu vaccine because we've gotten into a rut that I wish we would stop where we're counting the number of shots. When you are immunized against measles, mumps, and rubella, um, you get a certain number of shots as a child. There are infant shots that we give for things like camophilus influenza, where you get a shot at two months, four months, six months, maybe another one at a year, maybe later at five years. Nobody comes to the doctor and goes, oh, this is my fourth shot. It's just what we do. We don't count the flu shots. I get a flu shot every single year. I don't roll my eyes and go to the doctor and say, oh, this is my 40th flu shot. Is this thing ever going to work? It's just you get an annual shot. I get a tetanus booster every five to 10 years. I have to get certain other shots periodically, some of them yearly, some of them not yearly. Uh, some of them are twice in your lifetime. Some of them are, are more. We don't know yet what the number is to say that you have received 
a full-on protective dose, and this is how long it lasts. I think it's very likely, especially with the rate at which this seems to mutate, that we could get into an annual shot. Maybe they'll even package it together with flu, and you'll go in and get it. But we we shouldn't just call it a booster. It's just, your again, as you said, your yearly shot, just like we do with flu. And maybe it's your every five-year shot for tetanus and whatever it is for others. But those are not markers of previous shots failure. It's just that different bacteria, different viruses, different, uh, you know, germs need different regimens based upon both inherent qualities of the germ and the mechanism by which the vaccination is done, they have differing amounts and and times that they need to be given. Dr. Carroll, I had polio when I was nearly three years of age. That was a long time ago. And so for me, the polio vaccine was an incredible breakthrough. Uh, Certainly, my parents were grateful to know that other kids wouldn't catch it. Terry was able to get vaccinated when she was young. People have, for the most part, accepted vaccinations, whether it's the flu vaccine, whether it's polio, whether it's mumps, rubella, you know, tetanus, step on a, a rusty nail and you could get lockjaw. But this vaccine has stirred up so much political controversy. There are people who think it's evil. There are people who shun it. There are people who think it's it's causing chaos in the world. We have just a minute before the break. Why do you think there has just been so much controversy around COVID? So knowing there's only a minute left, I'm going to plea. I'm going to give you a short answer, but plea we come back to this. I'm going to push back on that. I don't think this is as different as many people think it is with respect to how other vaccines have rolled out. This would include most recently uh, the varicella or chickenpox vaccine. It would talk about the the uh, HPV vaccine and other vaccines which are out there. As long as there have been vaccines, there have been robust anti-vaccination campaigns. I just think this one is louder and more prevalent for a variety of reasons, which I hope we'll discuss soon. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's Bicentennial Professor, Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, and Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He's a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. After the break, we'll talk more about vaccines and where the pushback comes from. What myths about the COVID vaccine should we reconsider or reject? What should we be doing differently as people become less interested in preventive practices? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants, to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs dot com. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, introducing a new product called Memory and Focus. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Today, we're talking about COVID-19. What should we know about vaccinations against this illness? How should we be thinking about these shots in the future? People are tired of social distancing and wearing masks. What should we be doing differently? Our guest is Dr. Aaron Carroll who is a distinguished professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and the chief health officer of Indiana University. He holds the title of Bicentennial Professor and is Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, as well as Director of Surveillance and Mitigation. Dr. Carol blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and writes for The New York Times. His most recent book is The Bad Food Bible why you can and maybe should eat everything you thought you couldn't. Dr. Carroll, we were just talking about the reaction to COVID vaccines. You were pointing out that other vaccines have also had some pushback. Would you tell us a bit more about how you're thinking about the COVID vaccine? I mean, granted, maybe it's as a because I'm a pediatrician, but uh, I spend a fairly large amount of time in well care visits still trying to convince people to get vaccines. And this was long before COVID. Uh, when the varicella vaccine for chickenpox got rolled out, you know, I think really approved in sort of probably the late 90s, but really started to be pushed in the early 2000s, I had to spend enormous amounts of time trying to convince people to get their kids vaccinated against varicella because they, they considered it a what's a big deal disease of childhood. Uh, and I'd have to talk about, yeah, but it's much more dangerous for adults who've never been gotten it and expo and, and they're later exposed. And we protect, we, we vaccinate kids to protect the elderly. We also vaccinate kids to protect babies because some number of infants die of varicella every year. And since we've actually had widespread vaccination of school age children or anyone older than one, most years, zero kid, zero babies die of, of varicella. So it it's a huge benefit, but people considered it a benign disease of children. Like, why they're not really at risk? You know, why should I worry so much? Things you absolutely hear about when we talk about COVID. You could also look at the HPV vaccine, which prevents sexually transmitted disease and inevitably cervical cancer. And study after study after study shows huge decreases in cervical cancer amongst people that have been uh, vaccinated. But, you know, something like only 22% of young adults are fully vaccinated against HPV. Lots of people still think it's wrong because it might give the message that, that kids could be sexually promiscuous or that it's okay. And lots and lots of parents don't want their kids vaccinated against HPV, even though, again, we're preventing later cancer, let alone shingles, uh, and other diseases that they might get. If you go back through history, even polio, which which was you brought up before, there were huge protests against you know campaigns to get everybody vaccinated against polio. It took decades to get to where we need to be. 
when other vaccines were introduced, there were huge protests in the United States, in England, in other countries against smallpox vaccines and other vaccines. And these were often led by physicians and they were often led by scientists uh, who had a variety of objections, which I would argue were were incorrect, but firmly believed that vaccines were worse than regular disease, that we were causing harm, uh, that these were not good things to do. Sometimes it would even get violent. I mean, with you know, you know, bombs blowing up and 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 really serious protests. I think we're seeing it so much now because you know we've never vaccinated this many people this fast ever, ever you know, in the history of humankind. Uh, and because of that, it's all coming to a head very quickly. Uh, you know, the fact that we've gotten, what, 60% of America vaccinated, if not a little bit more, is, in my mind, a miracle. I mean, if you, I'm pretty sure I wrote columns at the beginning of this saying, I don't think you can get anywhere near that without mandates. The way that we finally get people vaccinated is to mandate vaccines for school which we do now for varicella, which is why 87, 88% of eligible kids get vaccinated against varicella. But if you don't mandate it, which we really don't do for HPV, most kids don't get vaccinated against HPV. Very few, in fact, are fully vaccinated by the time they get out to school. And if you play the long game and you require it for school and you keep vaccinating kids to go to school, eventually you get a whole vaccinated population. We just don't have the time for COVID. And we also can't do it that way because the people at risk have no protection whatsoever before vaccination. Now, Dr. Carroll, you have actually written about myths that people hold regarding the COVID vaccine. I wonder if you would run through a few of those. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one and the one that I see most often still is that people are concerned that it somehow affects fertility. Uh, and they this comes up a lot with women. It comes up a lot with parents who are looking at their children who might Someday want to bear children. Uh, and it really, if you dig into it, comes from uh, a couple people in, I believe it was Germany, uh, but it was definitely in Europe, who had some ideas that if we create vaccines against the spike protein uh, in the coronavirus, that later those same antibodies could attack the spike proteins of a placenta, which is also a way that the placenta hooks into uh, the uterus. Of course, that would hold true not only for a vaccine, but for COVID, because if we created antibodies against COVID and their spike proteins, they could also attack the placenta. So that really wasn't an argument against vaccination. It was an argument that this could be really, really dangerous. But it turns out that it doesn't matter. The spike proteins are not the same. You know, they're all different kinds of spike proteins and creating a spike protein against COVID does not have any effect on spike proteins in the placenta. And it turns out actually that getting COVID is far more dangerous to pregnancies uh, than and to the mother um, than getting vaccinated. Nevertheless, it persists. Uh, you know, this idea that uh, people could be at significant risk if they uh, get vaccinated towards their fertility. And it, it is not true. This And that one has been just strong forever. But of course, there there are other vaccines. There, I mean, the other myths. There were there were people that thought that they hadn't done enough research on the vaccines, that they had been rushed, uh, and because of that, that they weren't studied very well. But what happened was we really compacted the timeline. We didn't necessarily 
not do the research. We just shorten the time period, begin it. So as you well know, certainly, you know, if you want to, if you want to develop a new drug first, you have to do a whole lot of preclinical work, work in animals, work in cells. A lot of that had already been done because we'd been working on SARS vaccines. Uh, and because of that, we were prepared. And when you want to bring a drug to market, first you have to do phase one testing, usually tens of people. Uh, you're looking for safety. And if everything looks good, you package up your data, you send it off to the FDA, you wait while they review it for a year. And then if everything looks good, you move on to phase two, where now we'll be doing studies perhaps in the hundreds of people. And we'll do more safety, but maybe we'll also start targeting high-risk populations and seeing if we can look at markers of, of efficacy. And then we'll collect that data, put it all together, send it off to the, the FDA. And if they approve and all looks good, maybe we'll start phase three trials, which are large trials, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, randomized controlled trials, truly looking for efficacy and making sure that safety still exists, looking for, for side effects. All the time in between those was just removed uh, because there was so much money being thrown at this by the public. Companies went through phase one. They sent the data off to the FDA. They immediately started the phase three trials. They did not wait for the gamble because there was no gamble. If someone else is paying for the trials and all the work, you're not taking a risk. So as soon as the phase two trials, they immediately started the phase three trials. And as soon as the phase three trials were done, they started making vaccine. They just compressed that time frame. There are also more people working on this than any, you know, anything else in the history of mankind. So it went very quickly, but it didn't cut corners. It just was, was, you know, compact. Right. Now, Dr. Carroll, we hear over and over again, oh, the side effects of the vaccine. So many people have died from the vaccine. Hundreds of thousands of people have died from the vaccine. It's much worse than the COVID itself. And um, we should just wait. Let let herd immunity do its thing. Don't 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 worry. You don't need to be vaccinated. I, I know that Sweden initially had the herd immunity concept. So what about this idea of herd immunity and side effects? So herd immunity is describing a situation where enough protection exists within a group that exponential growth, real outbreaks are very unlikely, if not impossible. When measles comes into the United States, it just doesn't go anywhere unless it really sort of manages to hit a community where lots of people are not vaccinated, in which case we have an outbreak. But eventually it burns out because it hits people that are protected. You need to have a pretty high level of immunity to have that exist for an infection or for, for a virus that's very infectious. Our problem here is that, you know, most of the original calculations, when we said 70% of people need to be immune to have herd immunity, we're on COVID classic. Every single mutation has ratcheted up the infectiousness of this to where it might not be practical that we will hit herd immunity, that when these, when this appears every year, we're going to have lots of people get it like we do with flu, like we do with lots of other illnesses that we're not going to be able to suppress and eradicate it. Whatever hopes we had of hitting herd immunity were based on a strain of COVID that is far in the rearview mirror. It's just too infectious right now. We will limit the ramifications and massively bad effects by getting everybody vaccinated and we'll keep outbreaks to as low as we can. But this idea that if we can just get everybody vaccinated, this will go away, unfortunately, that's, that's not going to happen anymore. 
With respect to side effects, you know, all drugs have side effects. All vaccines have side effects. You know, most of them are just limited. Things like a rash or pain or perhaps even a feeling of malaise or not feeling well. But that's often your body's reaction to that. That's your immune system at work. It makes you feel that way. Uh, what happens, however, is that anytime we have a vaccine, any types of injuries at all, any types of illnesses at all, we want them reported to what we call the VAERS system. Then what happens is the CDC or other organizations go into VAERS and they do investigations to see, well, was this related to the vaccine or did it just happen to happen at the same time? Um, you know, you have to remember that the first groups vaccinated were elderly people, specifically people living in nursing homes. They also happen to be at the highest risk of death, period. So some number of people, reasonably high likely, are going to even die within a short time frame of being vaccinated if we're focusing at all on nursing homes. The question then becomes, well, were more people dying than you would expect or did more people who got vaccinated die than people who are not getting vaccinated? And when they did all of those investigations, even though deaths get reported to VAERS, it was not statistically related or scientifically related to the vaccine. That yes, people got illnesses. Yes, people died. Some people probably got into car accidents. But just because they happen around the vaccine doesn't necessarily mean they happen because of the vaccine. Now, some side effects did appear to be more common. This is when we talked about things like myocarditis and uh, adolescent males specifically, and some other things that showed up. But then when they do the investigations, the absolute number of people being affected is still very, very small and significantly less risk than that same population with COVID. Uh, but if you want to create a case to argue that the vaccines are bad, you can just keep saying VAERS, 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 VAERS. Um, but of course, once you've had it explained to you, you understand that VAERS is just a reporting system. It's not proven that all of those injuries are due to vaccines. That's the first step by which we then do investigations. And almost all the investigations that have been done since then have shown that almost all of the side effects are small, self-limited, and go away without almost any intervention whatsoever. Well, we're still on the topic of vaccinations. Are our vaccinations becoming less effective because of the mutations of uh, SARS-CoV-2? So it depends what you mean by effective. They still appear to be pretty darn robust at preventing uh, hospitalization and death, which again is really what we care about. Um, they don't appear, however, to be blocking as many cases as they did before. So more people probably were even protected against infection with some of the older strains of this than we're seeing now, um, which is, I think, why also we just keep seeing boosters being pushed so hard because uh, everyone is trying to prevent spread and in cases on top of those other, those, those other bad outcomes. But, you know, every time you get a vaccine, your antibodies go up for a period of time, then your antibodies go down and you're left with cellular immunity. The cellular immunity likely protects you against the bad outcomes. The antibodies are more likely to protect you against anything. So with more boosters, we may prevent more cases, but you know, the regular old vaccines still appear to work incredibly well against the outcomes that matter, which is why we're still using them. 
at some point, I imagine they may come out with newer vaccines, which are more focused on strains that are more prevalent, like we do with flu every year. Uh, but we have not yet seen those. Dr. Carroll, a lot of people have walked away from masks, social distancing. They've walked away from vaccines, antiviral drugs. They just want to be done with it. You know, rear view mirror. Forget about it. Get on with life. What should we be doing differently now? Well, I think there are still big, broad societal things that we could engage in or do that would remove a lot of the individual decision making that people have to do. It's, it's quite clear that high quality ventilation in buildings, offices, schools, shared spaces would likely do more to prevent transmission of cases than almost anything else we would do. Uh, we still have not engaged in that. We're not focused on that at all. There are some ideas about using types of light to try to kill viruses that, you know, might have promise, but we don't engage in that either. We could also get better about, uh, you know, masking in certain situations or masking at certain risks instead of making it all or nothing. We're not very good at that either. Um, but I think a lot of the pushback we see against masks is that uh, it's the thing we ask we're, we're making other people do constantly, as opposed to saying, Maybe this shouldn't be an individual thing in each of us in our own fight against COVID. Maybe this is something we should tackle as a society. And I think if we pushed more for those kinds of fixes, we'd see more success. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He is Bicentennial Professor, Associate Dean for Research Mentoring, Director of Surveillance and Mitigation, and Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and is a regular contributor to Opinion and The Upshot for The New York Times. His latest book is The Bad Food Bible. After the break, we'll talk about treating COVID. We've been a bit disappointed with the options. Well, what does Dr. Carroll think? There are monoclonal antibodies, oral antivirals, remdesivir, and Paxlovid. We also discussed the phenomenon of Paxlovid rebound. What do we need to know about long COVID? Dr. Carroll suggests we need to stop thinking like doctors. Well, what does he mean? What lessons have we learned from the pandemic? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients. Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at kayabiotics.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, introducing its new memory and focus product. More information at cocovia.com. 
and by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide a herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, that's G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're talking about COVID-19. Even though we'd all like to be done with this pandemic, the virus continues to evolve. It's not disappearing anytime soon. Why should we shift our perspective and stop thinking about this pandemic like doctors? What could be a more productive approach? Are there lessons we should have learned? We're talking with Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's the Chief Health Officer of Indiana University and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring. Dr. Carol blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and is a regular contributor to the New York Times Opinion and Upshot columns. Dr. Carol, I'd like to take a look at treating COVID for a moment, please. There are a few uh, compounds that have been developed to treat COVID. They've been a little disappointing. Could you give us your take on it, please? Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I can't stress highly enough that the best thing that we can do is vaccinate. You know, preventing cases or, or getting those antibodies built up ahead of time is just clearly the best we can do. And after that, you know, preventing cases from occurring is great. If we would just take some more measures to try to prevent that. But we've had, we have had some treatments that work quite well. Monoclonal antibodies were good. Um, at preventing hospitalization and death. The problem is, of course, that they're very hard to make and they're very expensive. And there's only so much of it we can make because there's only so much of it you can produce in a certain amount of time. So you would have a difficult time getting them sometimes, especially when the hospitals were jam-packed with people and the healthcare system was overwhelmed to begin with. There are some antibody treatments which can be protective ahead of time. Of course, again, I think vaccination is better. It's it's a little harder to uh, give those kinds of antibodies. It requires intravenous uh, work. It provide, you know, you have to go to a healthcare system. It's not like getting a shot and moving out the door. What holds more promise recently are the oral medications, uh, Paxlovid and uh, Molnupiravir. Those do seem to work, although depending upon which data you look at, Paxlovid does look to be uh, a bit superior in terms of some outcomes. But they're not perfect. Uh, you know, it requires you to take a fairly large number of pills. Uh, it requires you to get the prescription pretty quickly. Usually you want to start those uh, those therapies within, within like five days of infection, uh, which means you need pretty timely testing. You need pretty timely results. And there's a pretty long list of reasons not to take those drugs things that you might have conditions or precautions. So they require a prescription and it's hard to get in to see a doctor recently if you haven't been paying attention. And so if those are hoops you need to jump through. And although it's getting easier to find them, it was hard to find those drugs uh, for a period of time. And so, you know, jumping through each of those individual hoops to get that prescription and start taking it if you're eligible within the right period of time is hard. The Biden administration has talked about, uh, you know, reducing it, reducing those difficulties, trying to make it so that pharmacies with on-site staff might be able to do the diagnosis and prescription at the same time. That's still not as as 
you know, easy as we'd like it to be. It's still hard, especially in underserved communities or where people have difficult access to the healthcare system in general to get this. So that's, that's hard. The bigger problem, however, I think is that, again, the outcome of interest with those drugs that matters is preventing hospitalization and death. That's what we're trying to do. And they work, uh, especially Paxil, but does appear to work pretty well uh, in preventing hospitalization and death. But I think a lot of people are imagining, just as with the vaccines, that they'll make cases easier, that you should take it because it'll make your case of COVID less serious than it otherwise would be. Uh, what we're seeing now, and it's somewhat anecdotal, but it's certainly being recorded quite a bit, is what people might uh, refer to as, I don't want to say backlash, uh, but they have blowback, that they that they feel good for the course of COVID, and then all of a sudden everything comes back worse than before. I think people are calling that Paxlovid rebound. Rebound. That was the word I was looking for, because we talk about that with Afrin as well. Um and that, that they get better for a period of time, but as soon as they stop taking it, they actually get worse again. Uh, and people are complaining. They're like, well, it helped my symptoms, but now I feel worse when it's done and it's making it last longer. And it may be, um, because I'd argue again, the metric we were going for wasn't an easier course. It was, are you at high risk for hospitalization and or death? And if so, you should take this because even with rebound, you don't want to go to the hospital or die. When I had COVID, I take a mild immunosuppressant for my ulcerative colitis. And my wife was, you know, pushing, do I need Paxlovid? Do I need Paxlovid? And when I talked about it with my physicians, I was like, I don't believe I'm at higher risk for hospitalization or death. Um, and my symptoms are reasonably tolerable. Uh, I don't want Paxlovid because I don't want to have an extended course or any kind of rebound. That's not what I'm trying to treat. And I'll, I'll be opening myself up to a longer uh, course of illness than I otherwise might be. I don't want that. But if you're high risk, if you are at risk for hospitalization and death because you're elderly or because you have a chronic condition, absolutely, Paxlovid could prevent that terrible outcome. We just need to use these drugs for what they are intended and for what they are tested to do. Uh, and too often, we take those very strict criteria and we start broadening and broadening and broadening the groups of people that we're trying to treat. And when we do that, they have just as much of a chance as a side effect as anyone else, but much lower chance of a benefit. Dr. Carroll, there is something that has me really, really worried, and it's now being referred to as long covid I mean, there are all sorts of names for it, and I know you and your colleagues have uh, fancy names, uh, post- Post-acute sequelae of COVID. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. PASC. And the numbers that I'm seeing are just startling. I mean, people are saying, well, 10%, maybe as much as 30%, but somewhere yeah. maybe in the middle, 15 20% of people who have caught COVID- may develop long COVID, and they may have only had a mild case, just barely symptoms and maybe even just asymptomatic. And long COVID is creating some extraordinary complications, not just for the patient, 
but for the healthcare system, because apparently we don't know what causes long COVID, and we sure as heck don't yet know how to treat long COVID. And for some people, it has completely changed their lives. Can our health care system deal with the literally millions, maybe tens of millions of people who will have this condition perhaps for the next year, two years, or maybe indefinitely? I'd like to say yes, but this is another one where I think this is a problem we're now realizing and being exposed to or, or as opposed to it's new. We have always known that some number of people have what we call post-viral syndromes or you know, post-illness syndromes. They get sick and they don't get better. Uh, it happens with some diseases we recognize, things like Lyme disease. And it sometimes happens where we have no idea what people had the first time, but they have lingering symptoms that include fatigue, malaise, pain, and they get often, I don't want to say lumped, but because we don't have a good way of knowing what to do with such people or treating them well, sometimes it, you know, it gets diagnosed as fibromyalgia, sometimes as reflex neurovascular disorder, sometimes as post-viral syndrome. But it happens. It absolutely happens where people have long-lasting chronic symptoms that are often debilitating after they have had some other illness. I think what we're seeing here again is that we have just never seen so much serious acute illness in such a short period of time at such huge numbers that even if a small percent of them wound up having post-viral syndrome or long-lasting effects, it would look overwhelming. I think that's what's happening. I think we're seeing people are getting COVID and they're getting ill and a, a large number are having lingering effects of, again, fatigue, pain, uh, ongoing malaise, shortness of breath, difficulty doing uh, daily functions of life. My my pessimism and my concern is that we've never been good at doing this with any other disease. I don't think without a major sea change, we'll be very good at dealing this with COVID. Um, it's just at the moment, we were pointing a finger at a certain illness and saying, this is caused by that, because so many people have that. But this has been something that the healthcare system has been floundering uh, dealing with for decades. And I see nothing, unfortunately, which makes me think we'll be better at this in the near future. We've got to be because we're going to see, as you say, large, large numbers of people who are having ongoing effects that uh, we're going to need to take care of. But I don't think anybody has an easy solution at the moment. Dr. Carroll, in one of your columns for the New York Times, you wrote that in order to fight COVID properly, we have to stop thinking like doctors. What the heck do you mean? Yeah, that you know, that, that column probably took me longer to write and meant more to me than almost anything else I've written during the pandemic. I, I think that public health and we have ceded from public health to the healthcare system too many things that are not in the healthcare system's domain. If you, I have a good friend, he always says, if you get COVID and you need to be treated for COVID, you need to talk to an infectious disease specialist. You need a physician. If you want to prevent someone from getting COVID, you talk to a public health expert. You know, you talk about vaccination. You talk about, you know, things that we would need to do. Uh, but throughout the pandemic, 
we have turned to physicians. Uh, every expert on TV is a physician, often an ER doc or an infectious disease doc or a pediatrician or internal medicine doc, but it's a doc. It's, it's a physician talking about everything that has to do with COVID when the vast majority of the discussion is not about treating COVID. It's not about what to do in a hospital. It's not about what to do once you're sick. It's what are the mechanisms we have to put in place to prevent that? That's public health. Because of this lens, I think we've made some missteps along the way. When we talked about masking, we took a medical viewpoint at the beginning. We said, okay, look, the only masks that matter are the best masks. We need to save those for the healthcare system. Um, I would never want anyone to wear an inferior mask. Everybody has to have the best mask because that's how I would treat my patient. So hoard those masks. No one else use them. When really at the beginning, everybody wearing a halfway decent mask would have done a lot of good. We got that way with testing where you know, they would not let independent labs develop tests. The tests had to be perfect. They had to be nasopharyngeal swab PCRs. And you'll still get infectious disease docs that'll tell you any other test is useless. When from a public health standpoint, we needed rapid, quick, widespread, easy to do in volume tests that tons of people could take quickly. That's not a nasopharyngeal PCR. That's saliva-based PCR or at-home antigen tests. But it took forever for us to argue, because again, from a physician viewpoint, you need perfection. My patient needs perfection. If I don't have perfection, I could get sued and my patient could have a bad outcome. But from a public health point, often you want to do more, not perfect. Um, same thing occurs when we talk about vaccination. We keep stressing the individual with vaccination, what this will do for you. Every chart that tries to convince people to get vaccinated shows them the line of what happens if you're not vaccinated or the line of what happens with you do. But so much of vaccination is you're protecting those who can't protect themselves. You're prevent protecting others, your elderly grandparents, your uh, friend who has cancer, uh, your newborn infant. Uh, it's about others. And we don't stress enough those kinds of aims. We we keep thinking from an individual standpoint. And I think, and the column goes into this in detail, if you look at so many of the decision points we made along the way, they were made from a clinical standpoint, uh, because that's what we default to. And so often we really need a population public health viewpoint, and that's woefully missing in many conversations. Dr. Carroll, what lessons have we learned from the pandemic? What mistakes do we did we make? And what should we do differently the next time something like COVID shows up? I am pretty cynical about this. Uh, I think that there are some that have learned lessons. But when you say we, if you mean the United States, or even the developed world, I don't know that we've learned. Uh, I really am worried that we will make many of the same mistakes in the next pandemic. If we ask what could we do better, though, I one, two, and three is communication. I just think along the way, and, and so many of these things are tied up into that clinician versus population health, we don't talk to people well about what we are doing and why. It requires really nuanced answers and not sound bites. It requires long, detailed discussions, not TikTok videos. Uh, but good science communication is hard. I think what we did well was ramping up vaccination so quickly. I think we could probably do it even more quickly next time. I also think we have to be a little more willing to accept more 
rather than perfect. Uh, and to be honest about the benefits and harms and how good each of these interventions are. You know, we know ventilation is so amazingly good. We spend no time talking about it because we're arguing all the time about masks, which are much, much less in a, less effective. So why not spend time focused on the things that work and be willing to admit, you know, what things are better than others? And finally, I, I just think we have to do our best, although it's hard not to make this political or tribal or click-based uh, and to try to foster a spirit of community and that we are all in this together if we're going to have a communal response. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Aaron Carroll, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and the Chief Health Officer of Indiana University. He holds the title of Bicentennial Professor and is Associate Dean for Research Mentoring as well as Director of Surveillance and Mitigation. Dr. Carroll blogs on health research and policy at The Incidental Economist and writes for The New York Times. His most recent book is The Bad Food Bible, Why You Can and Maybe Should Eat Everything You Thought You Couldn't. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, introducing its new memory and focus product. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1305. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you could post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. 
Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.